1: Coming up in this episode.
0: Competition can have a very dark side for me um, in terms of comparison, in terms of being driven to win at all costs. The obsessive thought patterns started to kind of fixate around food. When I was in the hospital, my heart stopped. I started to see how important it was to take care of my body and how important it was to feed my body not the number on the scale.
2: She's been called the Queen of Pain and her name is Amelia Boone and uh, we're about to play you a podcast, an interview we did with her around her journey in the sport of obstacle racing and probably more importantly her journey with the eating disorders and uh, for many of you that follow the story of Amelia Boone, in fact that uh, follow any kind of sporting blogs and news, uh, you will have heard of Amelia Boone. She was uh, very well featured on the cover of Runners World magazine in the United States um, and they've really reported on her story quite widely on a number of different publications. But most famous for having suffered an eating condition for 20 years, celebrated as one of the best obstacle gra- obstacle races in the world, and um, and suddenly coming out as somebody that still suffers from the condition and being very open about how she suffers from that condition. So we decided to interview her on the basis of some of the discussions and the podcasts we've done previous to this around this condition called Red S. And um, she's I don't think she's a poster girl for it, but in in some respects she is one of those people that uh, suffers from this condition and has taken this idea of this body image of hers around the sport that she does to to another level and probably a disturbing level. Well, she's, she herself says um, in, a, in a
1: revelationary piece in July, and I remember reading this, it came across Twitter, and it was such a powerful piece because she's obviously been thinking and grappling for 20 years with this, she talks about how she's still not recovered and dealing with these things. But she was so candid in this piece that I really think it was it was powerful. And she says in it, I've known for a long time that I'm the living, walking example of Red S. So, um, so she'll take that title herself. And... You know, we spoke in our previous episode about Red S a little bit in the context of Mary Kane and the issues around the Salazar camp. So
2: just to explain to those who didn't listen to that podcast, known as relative energy deficiency in sport.
1: Right. So it used to be known as the female athlete triad, but it's been changed and expanded effectively because it was felt that that wasn't comprehensive enough because the female athlete triad is characterized by three things, as, as you'd guess from the name. The one is um, low energy availability with or without a de- eating disorder, uh, menstrual dysfunction, so the loss of the periods, and low bone mineral density. But the experts in this field recognize that actually there's much more to it. There are endocrine consequences, there are cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, psychological, uh, all kinds of other systems are affected and men are affected. And so the athlete triad effectively evolved and expanded into RED-S. And, and what what basically happens is that low energy availability triggers the body to shut down reproductive function. That's why athletes lose their periods because it's for survival purposes and a number of other different things. And so as soon as that happens, the body no longer has the estrogen that it needs and that leads to all sorts of second order effects. So mm. Now you get loss of bone because oestrogen, one of estrogen's many functions in the body is to shut off the, the breakdown of bone and to switch on the building of bone. So now you, you, you mess up the balance, uh, cardiovascular functions and so forth, obviously reproductive. So it's a pretty complex condition and not much is known about it. Yeah. And so, you know, Amelia obviously knows about it and her experience is, I think, what we really wanted to get out of it, because you know, we can talk to scientists and you can talk to people all day about the theory and what's known, but someone who's lived it and can give practical inputs, I think is what we really hope Amelia and, and she's she's done podcasts. And she said that she wants to have this conversation to help other people understand. And, and I hope that she
2: she gets that Opportunity as a result of speaking to us. So one of the questions, that, uh, many questions, we're going to ask her in this podcast, and, and we're going to ask this to you, Ross first. First, one of the things that I always find difficult to understand about women's sport in, in 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 principle is that we understand that lighter and stronger is always going to be better in sport. You know, particularly in the sport that she's involved in, obstacle Not racing. Well, you, your perception is, let's, yeah, say, let's yeah, say the perception no, is. No, so no. in a sport like that she's doing where you need to climb over obstacles, you need to have a lot of strength and the body weight you have, your, your weight to power ratio is critically important in that space. Is it not fair to say that the pressure on athletes of her caliber in that particular sport are to be as light and as lean as possible, even to the detriment, the long term detriment of yourself?
1: Yeah, but then you've got to define as possible because there comes a point where in your loss of body mass, you start to lose strength and power. Yeah. And remember, if the, if the cause of this is low energy availability, think about what that energy availability is. It's 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 quite literally the the fuel tank of the body. That's, that's what it's doing. And if it's so low that you're running on empty, then you will no longer perform at all. So plus you get... consequences of injury and illness Um, and amelia will talk to us about her stress fractures which she attributes directly to this so the key in your question is as possible what you need is to get as low as possible without compromising health and performance yeah now the health the, the compromised health comes later um you know you don't just suddenly get a stress fracture you don't just suddenly stop having periods the compromised performance comes sooner and so when an athlete starts complaining about chronic fatigue, uh, they can't recover from hard workouts, they feel tired all the time, they're not sleeping particularly well, they don't feel rested when they wake up. As a coach or as a physiologist or a doctor, you should be looking at that and saying, maybe this athlete is training too hard relative to what their diet and recovery strategies are giving them. Yeah. And if you fix that, then the athlete will find a natural body weight that is optimal for them. And it won't be a specific point. It won't be... 61 kilograms it won't be 126 pounds it'll be somewhere three to four kilograms range you know to either side of that and that will vary over the course of the season it'll vary depending on the training they're doing and so forth and that's kind of your approach you you have to let the body find that optimal weight and if you go below it then you lower than as possible and you start to get acute problems because you just simply can't fuel the exercise by the way um Studies have come out now recently looking at these low-carb diets which tend to be low in calories. Yeah. And, and what happens is the athlete just cannot sustain high-intensity training. Yeah. So they, they, actually, they actually lose the ability to train and race harder. So you have to fuel properly. And you can't, you can't drive yourself below that point because you'll, you'll suffer acutely. And as I mentioned and as we, we explored previously, you get all these clinical
2: complications that just aren't worth it. Well, as you're listening to this podcast, you'll see some of these themes coming up in the conversation with Amelia and uh, it's important to understand the background. But here is our interview with Amelia Boone. Amelia Boone, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. I kind of feel like I know you because we've done so much research in the build up to this podcast. There's so much stuff on the interwebs about you and that uh, you're almost famous and obviously you don't know us as well as we know you. Are, Are you aware of your sort of world famousness? (laughs)
0: Uh, I, I don't know if I would say world famous. Uh, it's flattering. Um, but I mean, I, I think that, um, it's, it's been something that's been totally different for me that I haven't expected. Um, but it's been really cool to like, you know, meet lots of people through that wonderful thing that we call the internet. Um, and that so many people have related, I think to, um, my own journey and story and whatnot
2: yeah so let's just i mean have a look at your i mean there are many um sort of events that you've won and you were obviously known as the queen of pain for many many years you've won three times one yeah. of the world's toughest matter just explain what the toughest mudder is just for us who so don't know too much about yeah. obstacle racing
0: yes absolutely um it is a 24-hour obstacle race um, so you run as many laps of a five mile about 25 obstacle course as you can in 24 hours Um, And it's an extremely, extremely brutal event um, because if you think about running that far and then also you are climbing over things, you're hanging from things, it's uh, pretty much what it'd be like if it was a American Ninja Warrior, but with lots of running in between all of those obstacles.
2: I see you're also a Spartan Race World Champion as well and the Spartan Race Point Mm -hmm. Series Champion and three times the Death Race Finisher. Death Race sounds quite a serious event. (laughs)
0: Right. Yeah. As I'm laughing about something called the death race. Yeah. uh, It's a very strange event. It was very much a, um, it's very much a mental kind of, uh, it's hard to explain, but I would say it's kind of similar to adventure racing, um, in terms of like lots of different tasks and, and things like that over, over multiple days.
2: And and can you die if you don't win (laughs) or you don't
0: finish? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I have not. I'm still alive. Um, And so hopefully (laughs) not. I don't think anybody has died so far. Knock on wood.
1: (laughs) It works the other way. If you die, you can't right. win. If you die, you can't win. But that's, that's you where die, you
2: can't win. That's right. where your
1: brain saves you. Central governor comes to rescue you from yourself. Yeah, so that's a podcast all on its there own. There
0: we go. Yeah. Just <laughs> tell kn- us, knocking th- some sense into yourself. How much do you hate yourself? Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, that that's kind of where I'm going to lead into the first question. And I, I think of all the research that we've done, one of the things that seems to be missing for me is that a lot of people talk about your history basically from your teenage life uh, and until now. Um, I, I'm interested to know... Where it all started. I mean, your 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 early childhoods. Where did you grow up? What was your sort of environment like when you were when you were growing up?
0: Yeah. I, so I grew up outside of Portland, Oregon, um, which is still one of my favorite places in the entire world. And
1: well, I, sorry, I when, know, sorry, I Emilia, when you say just outside, where, where exactly? Because I go there as often as I can, and I love it. And I'm just curious if I've been to where you grew up.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. So I grew up kind of like West Portland, like the hills, uh, in a in a suburb, actually. Uh, called Lake Oswego. Okay. Um, and so yeah, in cool. that in that area. Yeah, um, nice. and have you been to there?
1: No? I've been through there because I go to Portland and then I hop in a car and I've driven both directions towards Mount Hood and then I went out to Cannon Beach one time and I mean, it's just mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful place. I could I could go there tomorrow. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um and I had a you know I had a great childhood and I have wonderful family and my parents are my absolute best friends my sister and I are super close um and I grew up as kind of a kid involved people always ask me about athletic background and I grew up playing a lot of different team sports I was that kid that went from softball practice to soccer practice over to basketball and then different club things and I was just always kind of on the go um and it was great. And I was and I was and I was a good athlete. And I was just kind of pretty good at everything. Not super excellent,
2: yeah. um,
0: but enough to really be on these kind of like traveling teams and whatnot
2: at a young age. And, and your folks, I mean, were they the kind of folks that were supportive or were they kind of cheerleaders or I mean, you always hear of those, <laughs> those, those, those parents at the school days where the parents are kind of living through their own Misadventures through their kids. Uh, it was that a case, or your your folks had a healthy relationship with your sport?
0: Oh, they had an absolute healthy relationship with my sport. My my dad, unfortunately, I pitched in softball, and so he always like sat on a five gallon bucket um, for hours on end while I threw balls at his shin. Um, and he was, you know, he was my softball coach, and they were very supportive. I think they recognized in me from a very young age that I was, I had some type of in, intrinsic, internal self motivation. Um, And if anything, I needed to kind of be told to calm down and that I don't have to be perfect at everything Um, because I was very hard on myself in school. Um, You know, if I didn't, if I wasn't getting super straight A's, if I wasn't the teacher's pet, like then they would see how it would affect me. And I remember my parents being like, hey, we're happy with B's and C's. Um, So they were never high pressure. If anything, they adjusted very well to what my personality was as a kid and understood that. I actually needed more perspective um, as opposed to like motivation.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? And, I, and we'll, we'll come back to the timeline of the story and how it develops in a moment, but how many personalities there are like that in endurance sport? Have you, have you found that mm-hmm. as well? It's an interesting...
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because people always ask with endurance, and I, it's talking to endurance athletes, it tends to be people who we don't really know why we do it. And we don't really know where the motivation comes from because people always ask like, how, how can I be more motivated or how can I do this? And I, I say, I'm like, I don't, it's just always been there for me. (laughs) And so I, I, but it does seem to be a a common theme, a cotton thread. um, But clearly there are also pitfalls with that. Yeah, I
1: was just going to say it is a double edged sword, which then leads Mm -hmm. us, I guess, into, into the, the article you wrote.
2: I'm sorry. I'm so, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sorry to kind of interrupt this, but I, I think what I'm interested in is: Have you ever thought about what, what, what's what is the motivation? I get that the, you, some people are born with this kind of motivation behind this this drive to succeed, but have you ever sort of looked at it and thought, "Well, this is the reason why I'm like this"? I mean, people talk about sibling rivalry and all those sort of things. Yeah. That's why I asked you the question about your your your, your parents. But that wasn't a driver, it, was it? Just do you feel something you were born with, or was there some? At the drive, you had to look deep, dark inside, inside yourself. Nature, yeah. nurture issue, there.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, the only thing that I can point to in terms of kind of, and kind, and this wouldn't relate to sports, I think, but this more relates to school and career, is that I grew up in a very affluent suburb, um, and my family was not affluent by any means, um, and I think I started to harbor as a kid a lot of resentment towards. Um, Everyone around me who seemed to have everything and were given yeah. everything and didn't have to worry about things and they all got brand new cars when they were 16 and whatnot um, and I think there was a part of me in terms of school and in terms of motivation for career is that I said to myself I'm like I don't want to be the person worrying about you know like being able to pay the bills like the rest of my life and things like that and so there was a definite motivation there in me um, from that angle but in terms of that's the only maybe environmental factor that I can really point to. Um, but I do know, I remember probably when I was seven or eight years old, first kind of feeling like there was something a little bit wrong with me. Um, and that I just felt different than other kids in terms of like, I was very emotional and I was very scared of things. And I was very much like needed routine and structure. And if, Things didn't go to plan. Then I started to freak out as a kid. And so I I do think that I did internalize um, at a younger age that there was – that maybe there was something wrong with me um, and that kind of took hold.
2: Yeah. I mean – and it's (sighs) – we always look at these motivations for people why they they get to the level that they do in sports, and there's obviously uh, there's not some science, but there's always a, lot, a fair amount of hypotheses around elite sports people and what motivates them, because there is such sacrifice involved at the top level of sport that often it needs an extra mm-hmm. driver to get there, which is why it's fascinating talking to you about some of those drivers, which obviously played a, a part in that in that move towards being an elite athlete. Yeah,
0: and I think I actually. Um, Honestly, with athletics, I stayed away from competitive um, athletics uh, for a while, you know, after after I went through um, eating disorder recovery in, in high school and in college. And I knew that competition can have a very dark side for me um, in terms of comparison, in terms of being driven to win at all costs. So I wasn't quite sure that that was something that would be healthy for me. So I remember people would be like, oh, you should like try and run a half marathon or you should do this X, Y, and Z. And I initially really didn't want to be, you know, time ranked and judged. (laughs) Uh, I I didn't, I was afraid of what that could ignite in me, honestly.
1: And that was at the age of uh, your late teens. Is that right?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: So, (laughs) How how did the this this motivation that you talk about that that gnawing feeling inside you that that you that you sort of said germinated at about the age of eight? How did it come to lead to the first diagnosis when you were sixteen years old?
0: Yeah, so I was I was diagnosed with um, obsessive compulsive disorder when I was pretty young, so around the age of eight, 910 I don't remember exactly. It's funny how much, it's funny how much kind of goes in, in terms of your memory. And I was talking to my parents the other day. I'm like, do you remember exactly when that was? And none of us could remember. Um, but, um, cause I had a lot of different like fears and phobias and obsessive thought patterns that want to get out of my head. And I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, the obsessive thought patterns started to kind of fixate around food. Um, and I started to become scared of food and I started to, kind of like start to play games with it in terms of like, how little can I get by on? And I don't really know what the motivation was there. It was never a, I was always a very active kid. I was always a very lean kid. So it was never an external pressure. No one was ever saying, you know, you need to slim down. You need to lose weight, you know, and and the body image actually really wasn't even a part of it for me. It was almost just this like fear or phobia. And so I think that um, for, We all kind of found my parents kind of thought that it was just kind of that the food fears was just another manifestation of my obsessive compulsive disorder and um, didn't really understand that it was like a completely separate type of diagnosis.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, this is I mean, one of the things you talk about in some of the literature that I've read is that when you were in your high school years, you were obviously you were mocked for being looking sick. Uh, Is that because you were very lean?
0: No, I mean, I, I, I was not, I was, I don't know if I was, was mocked, um, but I, in, um, in high school, I think when I, uh, when, when I was, I was hospitalized because I was very medically unstable, um, but I was very, very visibly sick. Um, I mean, in terms of if you looked at me, you would say like, there's something very wrong with her because I was way too skinny. And I, and in general in principle, I don't like to talk about weights because they're very, They're very triggering for people who are dealing with eating disorders. And I always like to say eating disorders Mm. are not about weight. Um, But it was a very, you know, I I had as much as we can talk about how BMI is not a good indicator of things. um, It was in a place where I was, it was um, so ill that when I was in the hospital, my heart stopped um, just because, and my temperature, core temperature was like down in the low nineties and things like that. And so I was very, very sick. Um, and um, I think that that was something that uh, was very scary for me at yeah, that age yeah, I didn't know yeah, absolutely
1: going on. just just as yeah. an aside a very quick physiology it's interesting you talk about your core temperature being that low um, mm-hmm. we spoke about how the, the body needs a certain amount of energy to to keep the lights on as it were and yeah when, and when your energy availability is so low one of the things the body sacrifices is the ability to keep warm so, it's also a classic manifestation from the beginning. What was the, what was the trigger to go to the hospital in the first place? Was it parental concern, or was there was there an other medical issue that triggered that?
0: Uh, I remember. Uh, so I had approached my parents, um, and I remember a number of times saying, "Like, I'm I'm really scared of food. Um, I don't really know what's going on." Um, and it was actually my soccer coach, uh, my high my freshman high school soccer coach, who. I pulled my parents aside and said, Amelia is not looking good. Like, you know, over these past few months, he kind of saw a change in me. Um, and so they took me to see my primary care doctor and the primary care doctor ran tests on me, um, and did these things called orthostatics, which is pretty much they, they have you, yeah, they, you lay down, they take your heart rate and blood pressure and then they have you stand up and they do that. And, I mean, and then my doctor said to me, like, she needs to go to the hospital right now. Like, she is she is going to die if you do not take her to the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. And they did. And that night, first night in the hospital, my heart stopped. Um, and they, I mean, and they, they, they were able to get me back into rhythm. Um, but <laughs> so I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, because had I not been in the hospital that night, I don't know what would have happened. But that was that was kind of the trigger for it all um and it happened very very quickly yeah. and um i was very caught off guard
1: yeah and i will say say one thing is that whoever that doctor is obviously you owe a huge debt but i don't know yeah. if you realize there, there's there've been some studies done where they interviewed hundreds of physicians and only 37% recognized the signs of what was then called the female triad
0: yeah
1: and, uh, so this is yeah. a, this is a massively misunderstood condition and and i don't know if the doctor you saw then um recognized what he was dealing with clinically other than to test so that orthostatic um, test is is checking how well your body can defend blood pressure maybe that's a standard test but I mean you you, you got a doctor who did exactly the right thing for you
0: yeah luckily and I, I think I you know I was at a lo- young age when so I was 15 and I didn't start I was a I was late through puberty as well um so I don't even think that they would have called it the female athlete triad, because I think at that no. point I maybe only had one or two periods in my life, um, and so that also there were no at that age. It's very difficult to to see a lot of warning signs, especially if you if you're a female that's like late into puberty.
1: No, of course, you're, yeah, you're right. Um, they wouldn't have diagnosed it as that, but you at least yeah. recognized the, the the root cause of the issue and what needed to be done. So. Mm -hmm. so so okay so then you you, you're in the hospital obviously this is a call to action it's a it's a it's a frightening experience I would imagine and there's a degree of treatment which semi sticks doesn't the way I was reading it in the blog and you all the way through college and it was interesting in your in your blog you wrote um, that your disorder seemed to quiet during college and I was just wondering what that meant how it happened why it quieted
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a number of factors in terms of what I've realized, uh, especially with restrictive eating disorders like anorexia, like I was diagnosed with, it is very much habit reversal um, in a lot of ways. And so for somebody who has a lot of fears around food, if you keep avoiding those fears or if you keep avoiding things because of that fear, they become scarier and scarier and scarier through treatment, it was a lot of almost fear. It, it was ex- fear exposure therapy. So the more that I would eat something, the more that I would, you know, stick to my meal plan, then like the fears of those foods would lessen. Um, mm-hmm. and I would, and they would, and the thought patterns would kind of would quiet. Um, and also, and this is very, there's a lot of medical science behind this too, when you are weight restored to, uh, a weight that is, healthy for your body, where all of your systems are functioning, it actually does have a psychological effect in terms of reducing those anxieties around food as well. When you're extremely malnourished, um, it causes all different, and I don't know the exact signs, but it does cause all different types of obsessions to worsen. Um, And so I think that that's really like as long as I was staying in therapy, as long as I was sticking to my meal plan and, and doing all that things and the fears would kind of quiet. Um, but the problem is the further away you get from something, you kind of start to take your, you know, your, you, you kind, of, you kind of, like, um, your attention to it, being attentive and, and and combating against it, uh, starts to lessen. And so little by little, and with things not even with me, not even really understanding is that, old habits and old fears started to creep back in um, because I wasn't vigilant about it. So I ended up relapsing my sophomore year of college um, really badly and then spent the next three years of college pretty much fighting with the school to let me stay and not kick me out um, because Hmm. I was a um, because I was very sick but the issue was that i was also very high functioning at the time i was yeah. you know i was a 4.0 student you know i was a resident advisor i was a i was a teaching assistant i mean i was top of the class in everything and so it's kind of hard to say okay well she's very very sick but she seems to be doing really well she's super functional um and so that's, but I think that that's actually very, very common in terms of a lot of people who do suffer from eating disorders is that they can be very high functioning until all of a sudden the body just gives out.
1: Yeah, I saw in your piece, you said you were so weak, you couldn't walk up a flight of stairs. I think it was your, your wording.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would walk to the top flight of my stairs and I would be dizzy and I would have to lay down Um and I would, hide. Um, I was living, in, it was, I went to college in St. Louis and so during the winter I would like wear three or four pairs of tights under my jeans to try and stay warm um, and just try and hide from everybody how sick I had gotten. And,
1: and at this stage how how did you feel about yourself because in your blog post one of the things that you were really honest about even up front was this this battle of shame and cognitive dissonance and so on and obviously once yeah. you became the queen of pain and this endurance athlete, that took on a different shape. But I'm curious about how you felt about yourself, the relationship you had with yourself at this point.
0: Yeah, I, I think that at I, I, this point, there, there still was a lot of shame because I think that in college, I had said, okay, well, Amelia, you've been through eating disorder treatment before. You know, you're in the hospital, you went through a program there in Portland. Like, you you should know better. You should know better. You should be able to fix this on your own. And that's why I spent three years telling my parents and telling everybody, no, 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 no. I know what I need to do. Going back into treatment isn't going to teach me anything that I don't already know. And so there was, but there was a lot of very vicious kind of self-flagellation, telling myself, like, you're smarter than this, you should know better. But I just couldn't bring myself to do anything about it.
1: Yeah, that was that was the word I was trying to get to—self-legislation. Um, mm-hmm. What about at this stage, your close friends and peer group? Was there was, was there any pressure or comment? Was it helpful or unhelpful? How did that play out, or did you hide it?
0: I tried to hide it as much as possible. Uh, friends are very very perceptive. Um, my sophomore year roommates in college. Uh, had an intervention to try. They bought me a plane ticket home because I was living so far um, from home and I didn't have enough money to to fly home. So they wanted me to fly home so my parents could see how bad I was. Um, (laughs) And um, so they intervened in that way. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I get emotional because I I thank them for that. Um, I was also in an acapella group, um, in college, my big thing, I wasn't, I was too weak to do anything because there was no activity. There was no sports. There was mm. nothing in that realm, yeah. but I, I did sing, um, and my acapella group staged in a number of interventions to try and get me help as well. But the thing is, is that, you know, you can, you can lead a horse <laughs> that is cliche as it is. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Yeah. Um, you know, aside from sectioning somebody, um, because like they're, they they can not make, they can't make their own decisions, like, it's very, very hard to force somebody into treatment unless they're a minor. Um, and I know doctors told my parents, they're like, she's, she will recover, but it will be when she's ready to, and you can't force her to be ready to, um, before she is
2: herself. So when, when did the sport and and the sporting sort of life start kicking off? Where where does this come into play?
0: Yeah. So I had in, um, after college, I went into a residential program. So that was 24 hours a day. I lived in a house, um, in Carlsbad, actually. So what, what, um, age, what
2: age were you here about?
0: Uh, I was 22. Okay. So I had just graduated from college. Um, and I was there for about six or seven weeks until, until insurance kicked me out. Um, and then I went to law school immediately after, which probably wasn't the greatest transition. Um, but, <laughs> I through that I had once again kind of like shored up my recovery. Um and slowly but surely over the course of law school, I started to the voices started to quiet again, the obsessions started to quiet again, and I started to be in a really good place. Um, graduated law school, went to um start work at a very large law firm. And you know, I think that at that point I was pretty confident everything was was Kind of behind me. Um, and then that's when I had friends who approached me, um, a coworker who, you know, famously came up to me and said, Hey, there's this race called the tough mutter. Like we should go do it. And I saw it and I go, Oh, they don't time you. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think I can, cause I was worried about that yeah. competitive aspect of me too. Still, um, And so I went out and I ran it and I had a blast. And then I think, and, and so I immediately then started signing up for more. And then I slowly started to look at the more competitive ones. And so it wasn't really until, you know, I didn't really pick up the sport aspect of my life again until I was 20, you know, 26, 27. Um, And, but I, I felt like in a very solid place, I think at that point.
2: So you were in a good. So you were actually in a good space when you took on the sport. It wasn't a result of being in a bad space that you took on on the sport.
0: Correct. And I think that what I've done a lot of exploration over the years in terms of how I relate to sport and whether whether exercise, whether um, you know, there are a lot of people who have eating disorders where compulsive exercise is a part of it. Um, is very much that you know, like they hate moving their bodies, but they have to move their bodies cause they need to burn calories. That was never how my disorder really manifested. Um, and that's, I think it's t- Whenever I was tired, I'm like, oh, this is an inexperience of one and eating disorders are so different mm. from between people. But mine was never really in like that. Um, if anything, when I started to, um, compete, and especially when I started to do like the longer races, when I did my first world's tough smutter in 20 in 2011, and I needed to run for 24 hours, I started to see how important it was to take care of my body and how important it was to feed my body and feed it appropriately. And all of a sudden I had this like performance aspect. And so I think in a lot of ways, um, sport actually kind of helped me um, initially. Uh, And then, um, but, you know, there were some pitfalls um, as I, as my, achievements kind of grew and as um, my like public image kind of grew too, I think.
1: Those pitfalls being, for instance, that now you're in a world where not body image, but body body matters and people start commenting on it. You're exposed yeah. to the magazine media world where, where appearances right. matter maybe disproportionately. People judge a book by its cover. They judge an athlete by their physique.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really notice it at first and I didn't really, cause I was never in the running world and I never, now you hear people talk about how if they ran cross country or track in high school or college, there are a lot of body image pressures because weight is weight is, you know, for runners is kind of an aspect has always kind of been an aspect of the sport. Um, and that was new to me, but what was different is that I was doing obstacle racing, which was more, and I was heavily into CrossFit. And so it was also more about like muscle mass and strength. But I do remember when I started to receive some attention and, you know, be in magazines and I would start to see my body and I would see one off comments and they would kind of of people um, and, you know, 99% of people can say something super flattering, but then you're clearly going to fixate on that one person um, who says something, you know, negative and um, but so I, I started to kind of fall into that. And I think that when I started to um, do more running events um, and less obstacle racing, then even more, I kind of thought, I'm like, OK, well, like maybe there is a way that runners bodies should look. But I also knew that was also the reason I stuck to trails and like mountain races, because I knew that muscle was an advantage there, that muscle was advantage and that, you know, it wasn't about like. I've never run a like a road marathon, for instance, so it wasn't kind of about power to weight ratio in terms of in, uh, in terms of mountain races and whatnot. Uh, but it is very insidious at how it creeps in. Um, and but what's been interesting for me is that I I firmly believe comments from people. They don't cause eating disorders, um, but if I, you are susceptible, like I am, um, to those because of my eating disorder history, then it becomes kind of it. it it's much, much harder to deal with.
1: Yeah. Um, you 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 mentioned lost my train of thought.
2: Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually while, while Ross is remembering his train of thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested to know. Like, can you remember a specific comment that? would affect you in other words you've got 99% of the comments saying good things what what sort of comments would trigger that sort of uh, yeah. lack of self belief or that 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 issue
0: i just remember one time i i was, I was winning there was a picture of me crossing a finish line at a spartan race and i i just won the race i just won like the national series and i was celebrating and it was just some random comment that said weird body you know And Hmm. I mean, I didn't say, it was just a comment that said weird body. And I remember then looking at my body and starting to pick it apart. And then I would start to be at the start line and then look at the other women around me and I'd be like, well, okay, what do their bodies look like in comparison (laughs) to mine? Hmm. Um, Most of them were slower. (laughs) What was that? I
2: say most of them were slower than your body anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so, and the funny thing is, is that like, I knew, and I've always kind of known, I, I mean, look, I think I, I'd like to think I'm an intelligent person. Um, I knew that restricting and losing weight and things like that were actually not going to help me in terms of performance. But for some reason, I still, I, it's like I couldn't help myself. Um, and so that's where my, like everything that has gone in my eating disorders has been a, a little bit different is because I never thought losing weight was going to help me perform athletically. But I kind of got stuck in the aesthetics of it, yeah. of, of what, a, what a runner should look like or what a, an elite athlete should look like. And I remember actually going online and kind of like Googling other athletes who were my height and then trying to see what they weighed um, and then being like, holy crap, I weigh so much more than they do. Like maybe, maybe there is something, you know? Um, and so it, it is very much like a culture that with my background, um, started to just kind of exacerbate, uh, those little issues.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It's interesting that your, your issue didn't start as an image one, but then it became one because of the context you found yourself in. That's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. I do remember my train of thought, but I'm going to park that train in the <laughs> station for a while because I want to come back to it. But to pick up where you've taken the, the discussion now, in your piece, you spoke a lot about looking the part. And wh- what I was going to ask you, and I think you've already answered it, but I want to explore a little more, is yeah. c- you, aside from the Google searches to to compare your numbers to those of other athletes, was there any other way that you obsessed overweight did you did you measure body fat percentage all the time were you worried about what the scale said or was it really just subjective and and what what at that time would have reassured you like if you if you looked at yourself and you saw veins in your leg was that a sign you were good or was it something less that you could put your finger on
0: yeah. So I actually, um, I was petrified of scales. Um, and still to this day, I don't get on scales. Um, and I think that that's probably just a a remnant of, uh, from, you know, from, from being in treatment for so long, cause they would always blind weight you. They did not want you to know your weights because they were, doctors would be afraid as an immune disorder patient that you would obsess over them. Um, and so I avoided scales like the plague and I actually, I avoided, uh, body fat kind of testing, um, as well. And, but I do remember one time when I, I, finally, I went and got like a DEXA scan done through one of my sponsors. And then I was like, I don't want to know my body fat percentage, but then I accidentally saw it. And, um, and so, it, it, I mean, so I never really kind of like measured those, those metrics. Um, but I, what I think was more was was visual for me, or appearances, or, um, you know, like, could I see abs when, um, when, because everybody else around me had abs, you know, and I'm like, that abs aren't going to help you win this race, you know. It was really yeah. <laughs> like I knew things were wrong in my mind, um, but yeah. uh, but it was never the obsessive wayne. Um, though I mean, I have mixed thoughts on that because part of me is thinking like had I actually really tracked my weights um, and maybe I could have taken power away from being afraid of those numbers. Um, but I don't yeah. know. Yeah.
1: So so you, you, you have this extremely successful athletic career like you'd had in college, although at this point your eating issues, I think you spoke about them as this elephant in the room the whole time, but not really affecting your performance. You'd, you'd managed to navigate right. that until eventually you couldn't and you start to pay for the past effectively and that's that's what the stress fractures were so maybe just talk to us because I think correct me if I'm wrong but over the over a period of about two and a half years you have four of them
0: yes yeah um yeah so I started I um 2016 I ended up with a stress fracture in my femur uh, when I was training to run western states 100 miler and I think at that point I, I wrote it off as just a one you know everyone gets stress fracture yeah. like, Hey, like it, it just happens. You train hard. Um, I had made some training errors, et cetera, et cetera, but it was more than the repeated immediately after when I, when I came off of the stress fracture in my femur, I ended up with one of my sacrum, which then kind of set off red flags because there are certain areas of the body, yeah. um, where if you get a stress fracture there, it is very like much, there is something wrong. Um, and so my doctors at that point, we, you know, we did, We did a DEXA scan and, um, I was concerned because when I was 16, I, I was diagnosed with osteopenia. Um, my bone density was very, very low. It had reversed by the time I was about 25 or so. So I was no longer osteopenic. Um, but we started to kind of go down that road and, and figure out about, about bone density. And then everyone just asked me, you know, like, are you getting your periods? And I said, well, I have an IUD. I don't know, um, and um, so I'm, and I had had an IUD since I was twenty five. So I hadn't had a period for many, many years. Um, and I I, 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 wish that I had, um, you know, realized how detrimental not knowing that um, could could be. Um, yeah. But yes, it, it was definitely kind of all caught up to me at once.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so this so this process of now when you you kind of. The sport is the positive side of this journey, though, isn't it? I mean, you're kind of letting your sport dictate your eating habits okay. in a way that's your it's, it's, in a way it's your therapy, isn't it? That's your driver.
0: Yeah, I, and I, I for me it was very much I when I finally came to terms that like okay, I still have an issue, like I still have a problem. I was able to I was able to compete very highly, um, and you're know, at a very high level for for a very long time, but, you know, the body doesn't really forget and things kind of caught up to me. And I, my motivation for going back into treatment was really, I wanted to get back to sport and I wanted to be able to do it, you know, healthily and not being afraid of breaking myself. And I also wanted to really explore that relationship with sport and see was, was sport something that was beneficial for me or was it actually tied up in my eating disorder? So it was very much for me to kind of do that work and that and that um, self-examination. And I remember before I, before I went into treatment, I think the last, the last kind of straw for me was I was training for the Barclay Marathons, um, and I was two weeks before, and I ended up with a stress fracture in my heel. And I was just like, I can't, like, I was so upset about missing out on a race that I loved, et cetera. And then finally I was like, I need to do something about this. Um, and so it was kind of that realization that that what I was doing to myself was not congruent with what my goals and my values were. Hmm.
1: So at that point um, you decide to take it on yourself to to go into treatment and there's a phone call that you write about and you, you use the word flood of emotions when you tell your folks this. What, yeah. what were those emotions?
0: Um, I think at that point, it was just it, well, there was there was a lot of shame. um still involved a lot of a lot of shame. <laughs> as tell you it's just been a theme um of once again admitting that I was thirty five years old. I had been dealing this this for twenty years, and I still wasn't better cause I mean, i'm I am a high achiever. i I want to win at everything. and I wanted to win. Um at eating disorder recovery. I wanted to be that person that raised my hand and said, I beat an eating disorder and it's no longer a problem and I am fully 100% recovered. And here it was, you know, I had done a really, a lot of hard things in my life, but I still could not beat this. And I think that that was really, kind of what came up for me then, but it was also a lot of acceptance and surrender. It was like, now is the time to do this, you know,
1: yeah. um, like I'm, I'm done, I'm done. Yeah, so, so I mean, we've asked you like throughout this journey, um, how you felt and specifics and details. And I know you said earlier that every single case is unique. So I'm not sure so, how this question lands, whether you'll feel comfortable answering it. But what elements of your own journey do you think you can relate to others and the advice you'd give them? Someone who's listening to this maybe relates to some of the things you've experienced and they haven't reached that point of surrender and letting go and going in and taking on themselves. What, what do you say to that person?
0: Yeah, I think that it, it's something that very much when, when you look at it, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, I think I have an issue with food. I'm not quite sure. Like, I, I don't really, you know, I think X, Y, and Z. I'm, I'm clearly not a therapist, though. At this point, I've been in so much therapy, I feel like I could be. I uh, <laughs> kid, but, um, uh, but it's when your quality of life is really being affected and everything. I mean, I spent every waking moment of my life thinking about food, and that's exhausting. And I just thought that there could be something better out there. Um, and so I think for anybody who really is kind of like you know I don't really know if there's a problem I'm not quite sure um but when it really is taking a hold of your life and impacting things and it was impacting my relationships you know i i like couldn't go out on a date because I was afraid of eating in front of people, for instance, you know, I couldn't go to the athlete dinner the night before a race because of those types of things. Um, and so I really think that for anyone, it's just, it's really being curious about your relationship with food. And it's very, very hard because it seems like everybody has a disordered relationship with food now, you know, like it's very hard to tell what is normal anymore. Um, And I think that, you know, so I think that it's a lot of self-examination on the part of people.
1: Yeah. So while we're on the subject of advice, um, the train that (laughs) that arrived earlier, um, people people made comments that were critical and that obviously did tremendous damage because as you said, you were susceptible. What I found really interesting was that there were some people who actually would compliment you and that can also do damage. You know, they'd, they'd, say exactly. something, they'd say something like, hey, Amelia, you're looking really fit or you're looking strong or you mm-hmm. must be in great condition. And it turns out that their good intentions actually contribute to, to the slide. Now, what advice can you give people? I mean, it's impossible. How do you how do you possibly mitigate your behavior without knowing? And then once someone's right. in that situation, what's the best thing there, for want of a better word, their entourage, their close family, friends and loved ones can do for them?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because this has come up a lot because I did, people would say to me, man, you're looking super fit. And I am back in my mind, I'm like, what's fit mean? Um, and I see people comment on that all the time, you know, pictures of, and it seems to be particular pictures of runners saying you're looking super fit and people are like, oh, that's a compliment. But I just, I tell people, I'm like, there are a million things to compliment people on. Like we do not need to talk about people's bodies in order to compliment them. It's an easy one. It's super easy. It's super lazy person compliment, um, (laughs) to be like, Oh, what can I compliment them on? Um, and so I've just made a rule of thumb that I never comment on somebody's body. And I don't, you know, I had a friend recently who lost like over a hundred pounds and everyone's congratulating them, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting is you don't know why a person lost that much weight. They could have cancer. You know, they could like it may not, it may not be a good thing. Yeah. Um. And so I've just kind of made it a rule of thumb to like never talk about somebody's body. Um. And even, you know, and so my and my my parents, my family learned that um at a very young age. They also because I've been dealing with this for so long. They've also learned that you look healthy is not a great thing to say either, because um, for anybody who has a history of a restrictive eating disorder, that probably means, you know, to them, they translate as that you've gained weight or you look fat type of thing. <laughs> um yeah. And, and so people, I mean, look, I, everyone has the best intentions and it's not at all saying, trying to lay blame on people. And I think that we are kind of in this culture now where I think people are paralyzed to say anything. Um, and so, and my answer to that is just say, so don't say anything about, <laughs> about appearances. Yeah. Um, it's pretty much as simple as that.
1: Okay. So here's, <laughs> you may think you've answered this and so I'm sorry for asking it, but it's contextual because yeah. of the Mary Kane issue. And I can't stress right. enough how different your situation is to Kane's. But a coach who's working with an athlete is almost entrusted by that athlete to make them a better runner. Right. Is it ever okay for the coach to bring up weight with an athlete?
0: This is really hard. Um, and I feel like a lot of coaches now especially are very, very paralyzed um, about like what do we do. Um, because it is running has always been... Running well all sports, there's been a weight aspect, but there's definitely a correlation there with running. Um, I think that there is a way to talk about it um, that can be supportive. Um, but the issue is that it is very, you know it's very contextual in terms of like if you have a very good relationship with your athlete as a coach, then you may have a safer space to be able to talk about that. Um, I would more watch for cues if the athlete brings it up him or herself repeatedly. So if an athlete is like, I don't know, maybe do I need to lose weight? Do I need that actually like the fixation on the weight may actually signal to the coach that there is an underlying issue there, for instance. Um Mm. and it might be more in terms of like in a way to broach weight and that it's a it's not so much it's not it shouldn't be about a number on the scale it should be about energy it should be about you know like how they're feeling day to day in their workouts are they recovering well it's really funny when I started eating well again when I went into treatment I was like man I have so much more energy and I my body doesn't feel so awful after every run for example um and so I think that there's a way to talk about it that's more about like how you're feeling day to day. Are you recovering? Um, you know, are you sleeping well? Yeah. Um, I don't think that I'm a person who is like, there should be absolutely no discussion whatsoever, completely off the table. Um, because I think that there are people who can have a completely normal and healthy relationship with a number on the scale and just view it as a data point. I actually really wish that I, I hope I'm hopeful that I can get to that point where I can look at a weight on the scale and not have any emotional attachment to it whatsoever. It's just a number. It's just a data point. It doesn't have any impact on my self-worth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there could be athletes for them that in that situation, that it's completely fine to talk about weight because they have no emotional attachment to it.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's the art of reading your athletes as a coach and having their best interests. I've always thought, and my take on this would be that weight obviously matters for performance, but you don't address weight by addressing weight. You address weight by addressing diet and training and recovery. And then you allow the athlete's physiology to tell you what the weight needs to be. Because as long as you're optimizing the input side of the equation, the output side of the equation works. And I think you... You alluded to that when you said that since the treatment, and this is really going to be my last question because we've taken so much of your time. So I'll let mm-hmm. Mike wrap up after this. Is you, you you go to this clinic in Seattle, I think it's just in Seattle, right?
0: Yes, yeah, in Seattle.
1: And you spend the time there enough that you now feel you've obviously grown and understood yourself to the point of communicating this with the world. And you're now back. You raced at the weekend, for instance, the toughest mudder. What what are the road signs or the landmarks, if you wish, that you're now looking at to reassure yourself that you're okay and that this, this is going well?
0: Yeah, I think for me, it's It's very much how I'm feeling um, in terms of recovery and day-to-day with my training, um, <sighs> in terms of how I'm sleeping. Um, I do have a team that that kind of holds my weight and monitors that, but that's not... I mean, I, I'm not at this point, I'm not the one that's kind of, that's keeping track of that on my own. Um, but it is very much just about, it is about feel and it is about engagement. And for me, it's mainly, uh, the main part is the psychological part is about like how much of my time am I spending obsessing over food and those kinds of issues. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's different for each person, but it is very much, um, It is very much just thinking about like how much of my life is spent um, thinking about it
2: (laughs) for me. Mm. Amelia, thank you very much for your time. I think it's been a fascinating discussion and I really do appreciate uh, being so open with us about this. I think my my final question is if there was one message in a a sentence you wanted to get out and you've been very vocal about this uh, over the last year, what is that one message that you want people to take home from your experience?
0: Yeah, I think that um I, the one thing is also to you know that I eating disorders are super um complex. They never look the same. Um and so it is something that is very individualized to a person and that weight typically may not always show how how badly a person is struggling. Um and I think in terms of the athletic and the performance side um, is also very much for people to understand that there is kind of this, I am a firm believer in the set point type of physiology and that, you know, the quote unquote, ideal weight for an athlete um, that is the exact same height as a different athlete may be completely different. Because your body just may function at a certain weight better than a different weight. Um, and so I think that each athlete kind of needs to figure that out for themselves um, and understand that it's it's kind of an area where when people are like, okay, well, how do you know when you're at a, a, a good weight or something like that? And I say, it's a weight at which, you know, your body is functioning for women, like your cycle is normal, your hormones are normal, you know, you're recovering well, you're not being constantly injured. And those are kind of the things to look at, you know, it's not the number on the scale.
2: Mila Boone, thank you very much for your time.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast.